today <laughs> is July 20th, and laughter is in the room. It's Johanna Kim. <laughs> Johanna, what's good? Hi, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, why are you laughing? Because this is, I've never had. I've never had to speak into a mic before, except for like an elementary school play. So it's kind of nerve wracking. Exciting, nerve wracking. Exciting, definitely. What'd you do today? Today, we went to go eat in Flushing. It was very good. We're both very full. Had some bubble tea <laughs> and some soup dumplings. Enjoyed the generosity of a couple of folks as well, right? Mm, yes, we actually met two girls in on the line to bubble tea um, who we were talking online and basically realized that we didn't have enough cash for the cash-only bubble tea. And this is flushing. Yes, and the two girls behind us offered to pay for our bubble teas, which was amazing. Friends formed, and her name was... Didn't catch her name. (laughs) (laughs) But she had a hair appointment at 3.30, that I know. (laughs) The kindness of random strangers, gotta say. Yes. And we were random strangers... Not that long ago. Mm-hmm. When yeah. did we meet? And what's kind of the story there again? Um, so we met back in April, I believe. Was it April? It was a Korea Society event um, with the chef of Cheju Noodle Bar. Douglas Kim. Yes. And who was the other chef? It was a white dude. I don't think he was even a chef. He was just a restaurateur with mm, no culinary experience. Yes. So it was an interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. But it's the guy who runs Mr. Bing, right. which is now a chain of Chinese pancake places around the city. I think they're called Jian Bing. Mm. It's Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> don't take my word for it. But yeah, so we met there at that event i came alone were you there alone as well? i was also alone okay cool um so that was actually my first korea society event um kind of went in there not knowing what to expect was actually supposed to go with a friend who backed out last minute decided to go there alone anyways and was very thankful that you came up to talk to me <laughs> when i was all alone <laughs> i don't think that's what happened Really? I I don't think that's what happened. I remember seeing you in the room. So basically, there was a talk, uh, which I found really interesting. First of all, you have one guy who was like very passionate about bringing Korean ramen, which Mm -hmm. is typically something that's just enjoyed in kitchens, like an an instant snack at one Mm a.m. Into like the restaurant scene with the pedigree that he has. He's working at Michelin star restaurants in New York and I think Korea as well. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, you had a white guy with thinning hair (laughs) selling (laughs) Chinese pancakes. Uh, But he was someone who was very passionate about it too. So it was like Mm -hmm. a really interesting talk. They had samples. I was eating a lot of the samples. Mm -hmm. Didn't really know anybody. Talked to a couple of folks, blah, blah, blah. See, I thought that you knew a bunch of people who were there because you were just talking to everyone. And... That's what I observed at the event. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the point of going. Like, obviously, mm. we got to enjoy some pretty decent food out of it. Yes. But on the other hand, like, it's it's like a good way to meet people, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's like a really nice venue. You have people who are interested in food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say kind of the, the price tag of 20 bucks or so mm-hmm. keeps out a couple of folks who just want to eat the free food and run away. You have people who are sure. interested in kind of sticking around. Yeah. So. 
that was kind of my reason for being there. I'm not sure about you. No, same here. I think, you know, I was or I'm still at a point in my life when I'm where I'm really interested in meeting new people um, and just making more adult friends, I guess, um, because, you know, we have we all have our school friends, maybe some work friends. Um, and those are people you meet just, you know, naturally um, based on the places you are. And I feel like there are less opportunities to meet people outside of those circumstances. So I'm kind of at a point in my life where I'm interested in meeting new people um, at places like Korea Society where I know there are going to be people who kind of are similar to me outside of, you know, work interests, school interests, things like that. So that's why I was there to meet new people as well. So tell me about yourself. So yeah, this is me when I'm 26, turning 27 this year. Birthday? Um, October 5th, Libra. <laughs> Libra. <laughs> For anyone who's interested. <laughs> um, so yeah, October 5th, 91. Um, year of the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you born on the year of the sheep? So I was born in Seoul, South Korea. I uh, immigrated to the States when I was two years old. So grew up in Forest Hills, New York, and I love the neighborhood. Anyone who meets me knows that I am pro Forest Hills. It's a great place to raise a family in New York City. <laughs> Can you sell us on Forest Hills a little bit? Uh, yeah, so I would say it's definitely you definitely get that suburban vibe in New York City, being very close to the E, the F, the R, and M train. <laughs> very close, so you get into the city easily, quickly. What was the experience of growing up there? Like, I grew up in Flushing and Bayside, where being white is probably more the outlier than anything. Mm -hmm. But you had more of the traditional immigrant showing up in a white community experience mm -hmm. how'd you enjoy it yeah i mean i would say a lot of um the people in forest hills also experienced that immigrant uh you know lifestyle but it was definitely less asian and you know maybe some of those families had been in the country for longer for more generations than my family um, I was coming into Flushing. I used to go to church in Flushing when I was younger and would go to Sunday school, Korean school in Flushing. And even, you know, summers, I used to go to a summer camp that was in a Protestant church in a very predominantly Korean neighborhood. But I think I didn't fit in completely there either. So I was always experiencing this, like, in between place because you know even when I was going to Flushing yes I was in an environment where kids were all Korean but I didn't really fit in there either because whenever they would meet they would you know schedule play dates for things after the Sunday school or Korean school they all lived in Flushing and I didn't and I had to leave so they started becoming closer and closer through those experiences outside of um, you know Korean school or you know Sunday school but I always had to go home so I wasn't really included in that either so 
It was, I think growing up, I just didn't really know where I fit in. Didn't really fit in completely in this group. Didn't really completely fit in in this group either. So as I transitioned into maybe junior high school and high school, I really separated myself from the Korean side to me. And that's really what I thought I needed to do to survive in America. And I make more of an effort now to learn more about the Korean culture because that's, you know, where I feel comfortable. I'm comfortable in learning that side to me now where I wasn't as confident or comfortable um, to do that when I was younger. How do you define being comfortable? I would say I'm just more confident about it now. Um, And in that confidence, I'm more comfortable in speaking about it and going to events where there are more Korean people. And I think even just, you know, you know, forming a relationship with you, Kevin, I think I found a lot of comfort in realizing that there are more people out there that have experienced some of the things that I did growing up and finding comfort in that, finding comfort in people who've experienced similar uh, things that I did growing up and being able to swap those stories and share our experiences because we had similar backgrounds. So while we were recording this, I've been boiling up some barley tea, which I usually drink in a place of water in my home. Johanna had a story, so let's hear it. Yeah, so we drink this at my home as well. I think it's porita in Korean in the first grade. So this is like a side note, growing up Korean-American in a very white neighborhood. Um, so this was first grade, and my mom had packed me porita in a, you know, previously used Poland spring bottle. So she was, you know, being kind to the environment. Can you describe the color? Or is that coming later? Or is that coming later? It's coming later. It's coming later. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. I confidently take out my Poland spring bottle filled with porita um, in first grade. And the boy next to me says, Ew, what is that? Is that pee? Because for anyone who doesn't know, it's, you know, I would say the color, it's like a pale yellow color um and it definitely looks like pee so this boy um you know makes this very loud statement and of course I get so embarrassed I'm like cringing on the inside wanting to cry wanting to run home at that point and I actually the other boy who was sitting next to me He was so nice and came to defend my honor and said, no, what are you talking about? That's not pee. It's apple juice. Are you dumb? (laughs) And at that point, I just like didn't even want to explain that it wasn't apple juice. It was like Korean tea. So I just went with it and I was like, yeah, it's apple juice. Are you dumb? Um, (laughs) So yeah, never ask my mom to never pack me purita in a Poland spring bottle ever again. And did you have your defender say you want a sip of this? (laughs) No, I didn't. But 
was very grateful and know his name to this day. <laughs> Shout out. Adam Popper. Are you Adam. listening? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Adam for... and his apple <laughs> juice. Yes. Uh, Thank you very much, because that really saved me from more embarrassment in first grade. Was your mom packing you a lot of traditional lunches back in the day? Yes, she was. Um, So, you know, my mom is the type of person who wakes up at four o'clock in the morning and makes all of us, my dad, my mom and my sister, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, So she used to wake up every day. Uh, at like four o'clock in the morning to pack us all lunch and she'd pack um, kimbap and all sorts of Korean goodies which I didn't appreciate at the time I think like anyone else like any other Korean American kid I really wanted Lunchables I wanted some soda um, that stuff but never got it Yeah, I was never allowed to eat Lunchables for lunch. What was your favorite meal that she would pack you? I'm sure there were different types of lunches. Oh, man. I would say at the time, I didn't enjoy any of it, even though today I would love that. Um, And she still makes, you know, most of my lunches, side note, at 26 years old. But um, at the time, I didn't enjoy it. I was so embarrassed. I would wolf down my lunch and just, like, hide my lunchbox as quickly as possible. Yeah. Oh, man. Thanks, Mom. I really appreciate it now. I remember growing up, I went to, like, a little private school with 10 kids in Flushing. And so half the kids were Asian, if not Mm. more. And so lunch was like the UN, right? <laughs> like I'm bringing in Korean kimbap, oh, which is like seaweed, lucky. rice, mm-hmm. yellow, radish, mm-hmm. spam, spinach, like all of this stuff it requires a lot of ingredients and a lot of hands going into yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of time. Then this, my buddy who was actually born on the same day as me, Jason, Jason Huang, he would bring in dumplings and I'm like, this is the stuff, right? Mm. And then all the people were bringing in different stuff. And so we always traded. Like, I hated my lunch like you. I was just so used to it. Mm-hmm. If kimbap is sitting and it's not refrigerated or anything, it kind of gets a little gross, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, dumplings, they're fried. They're oily. They're tasty. They Yum. hold up. And so I would trade them two for one. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. When you consider the fresh ingredients and the hands going mm-hmm. into it compared to his, which was... Sorry, Mrs. Huang, but it's probably like boiled dumplings or something from the bag, <laughs> <Pre-made>. right? Pre-made. <laughs> it was a pretty bad trade, but I loved those Chinese dumplings, yeah. pork dumplings for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think my class is a little bit more diverse, and mm-hmm. I would say other than the dumplings, I had a pretty powerful hand in dictating trade terms among yeah. the lunch. So would you say that you were not embarrassed by your lunches? I wasn't embarrassed. I just prefer the dumplings, but mm. everyone else was going after my stuff. So it was the currency yeah. of the day, pretty much. At what point did your mental and physical health start changing? So it all kind of started junior year of college when um, I went, I studied abroad in London. And, you know, just like a few things were happening, my heart would raise and. Um, when I wasn't doing anything, any physical activity and I would just get tired a lot more quickly, you know, a couple of things. And it turned out that I had overactive an overactive thyroid. So 
I started taking a medication that eventually I found out that I was allergic to. So it all kind of started junior year of college, but I would say a lot of my health started really deteriorating my second year of grad school. So, um, you know, I used to have really bad stomach pains maybe like once a year, but then it started to increase in frequency and intensity. Then I ended up leaving grad school partially because of that and went to a lot of different doctors. It was kind of a whole process and you know, I had a lot of non-specific symptoms, meaning it wasn't really a clear a symptom wasn't a clear um, indicator of a certain problem. So it was a lot of like migraines, you know, mild stomach pains, um, things that doctors really couldn't pinpoint to one thing. So I think it was really difficult for them. So I can't completely blame it on them. But so, yeah, I think a lot of doctors had a difficult time figuring out what it was and so did I eventually ended up um, you know going to a nephrologist at NYU Langone who solved the issue solved the mystery you know I also at that point was definitely better prepared to present my problem to a doctor I think beforehand I was um, you know I had never experienced this before so I kind of expected the doctor to kind of figure everything out which I've come to learn that you have to go prepared as well as a patient. So at that point, I had a stack of documents, all of my medical history. Um, At that point, I was writing down all of my symptoms, days, times, very specific. Um, I had a food diary as well. So I just gave him a lot of data to work with. Um, I guess coming from a research background, I just at that point understood the importance of collecting data on your health and being able to present that to a doctor for them to have something to work with. And thankfully, he was able to solve the mystery. Turns out I was allergic to this medication that I was taking for my thyroid which is very rare. You know, this doesn't happen to many people. I think in the medical literature, there are about 30-something cases that are reported that they have uh, data on. So yeah, it's very understandable that doctors wouldn't think that this would be the problems. And thankfully, because it was drug-induced and it wasn't a true autoimmune disorder, um, as long as I was able to basically stop that medication, stop taking it, the idea was that the damage would stop as well, which ended up being true. Um, And at that point, really treatment was to reverse any damage that had already happened. So I was on a very high dosage of steroids. um, And that treatment was about five, five and a half months. And at that point, my self-worth was kind of plummeting because when anyone who knows when you're on steroids a lot of physical changes happen so you gain a lot of weight on your face and specific targeted areas on your body so the back of your neck is one of them you get like a donut ring around your stomach (laughs) which we both have right now after all the food we ate today um So yeah, I was really self-conscious. I was not taking any pictures of my face at the time. I do have some pictures, but I would never post them on social media. 
And yeah, it was it was a tough time, but it was also so rewarding to know that we had kind of finally figured out this six year long problem and that I was feeling a lot stronger and had so much more energy than I had in in six years. And at this point now, uh, thyroid levels are normal. Kidneys are normal. So, you know, definitely getting stronger, getting stronger every day. So that's been really good. Do you think that it seems like it's a combination of being able to kind of translate what you're feeling in the most effective manner to your physician? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, the right like match a physician too. So do you think if you went with like the final presentation that you basically had for your final doctor, which was being able to, you know, scientifically and uh, in terms of details, just being able to lay everything out in a very organized manner for him. If you did that to the first doctor that you had met, do you think that you'd still be able to kind of find out the solution right then? Or do you really believe that the quality of the professional really changes as you meet each person? The quality of the physician, at least for my case, my specific case, um, that that was really important because it's such a rare case if you don't have, you know, like my doctor, my nephrologist who kind of figured everything out, he has been through rigorous training. So I do think for more rare cases, you do need more training because with more training, you think differently and you're able to, I think, think more critically. And, you know, maybe it doesn't even come down to the quality of the program you graduated from. Maybe it just also comes down to the type of person you are as a physician. And I think that I ended up meeting someone eventually who was a very critical thinker and who was a great, efficient problem solver. So I think the previous doctors were less so. So I think, you know, no matter how you present your case to a physician, if they're not a critical thinker or, or a problem solver, then they're not going to be able to get it no matter how much data you give them. So what was effective for you in terms of finding the right physician? So I had a lot of help through this through um, my sister, my older sister, who you know, also had friends in, you know, the medical field. I think she had some knowledge of what good programs were out there. And I think for her, it came down to a bigger hospital, you know, something that was, had a reputation for quality healthcare. And, you know, NYU Langone has a really good reputation. This is not sponsored by them, by the way. (laughs) Um, But they have a great reputation. And at that point, I think that a good fit for me was a big university level hospital where I was able to get care from not just that physician, but also be able to tap into the other resources that are available at that hospital. So yeah, I was going to private practices beforehand and, you know, I just needed, I think when you're a physician that's in a private practice, you're kind of removed from a lot of the newer technology, newer research um, that's kind of needed when you are dealing with a more complicated problem that's not well known. So going to a university level hospital where there are a lot of different doctors, new research is being pumped out every day. I think that it's more it's, it's helpful to be in that type of environment and receiving care there when you are dealing with a more rare and complicated issue. 
Um, when even, for example, even when I was getting my uh, kidney biopsy done to confirm uh, the diagnosis that the doctor had in his mind, usually it takes about three to four weeks to even book an appointment at the radiology department to get the biopsy done. But my doctor was able to get me in with an appointment within that same week. So everything moved a lot more quickly, and I was able to get the help that I needed more efficiently and a lot quicker than I had imagined. You know, this is something that I had going, that had gone on this past year, and when I had met you back in April, that was really when things were slowing down, um, things were getting a lot better, and health-wise for me, and I was kind of on the path to meeting new people, ready to meet new people, ready to maybe transition into a new career, which is what I'm doing now. And yeah, just socialize more often than I was before. Did you kind of keep a diary at any point? Like how did you kind of set benchmarks or kind of set points for yourself to keep you level throughout the process? It's a pretty crazy time it's something I started back in college but so basically it's a planner and I have a little bit of space where I kind of write what happened that day what I have scheduled and sometimes I you know go into it more deeply like with how I was feeling that day so during this time uh, when I you know started to realize I needed to be more uh, detailed with my record keeping I was being pretty detailed I would say in my planners of you know seeing when did I see a doctor what did they say Uh, how did I feel that day and all of that so I was doing a pretty good job at record keeping in terms of you know symptoms but also just emotional and psychological stuff as well and it's really interesting to see um, I actually looked back on some of these older planners and it's kind of crazy how you know a lot happens in a year I think I was at a pretty low point even about a year, a year and a half ago. So it's just really interesting to see how resilient people are um, and how, you know, I think when you're faced with certain crises in your life, you either, you go through ups and downs, I would say. I At least I did. Um, there were definitely times when I felt like I kind of just wanted to roll over, give up, and say, well, I guess this is how I'm going to live my life forever. Just, you know, s- sick and not be able to accomplish all of the things I had in mind. Um, but I think I reached a point at some point in that time when I said, no, I'm going to get up, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to really work on you know, getting better. No matter how much your parents and your family love you, they can't fix your problems for you. You have to do it on your own. So I think that's a big lesson I learned, that you have to be an active player in fixing your problems and working really hard towards what you want to accomplish. But also being, you know, remembering to be kind to yourself, that sometimes, you know, that's not going to happen overnight. It might take some time, but as long as you're moving forward a little bit each day, that's what's most important. How much did you bring in your friends and family to be active players in this and communicating with? I think building a community around you and really seeking out that community is really important in in times of crises. But sometimes you just want to keep it a secret. You have to make yourself vulnerable 
And I think that during this time, I had a really difficult time being vulnerable because I felt so vulnerable already that I didn't know how I felt you know, putting myself out there, being even more vulnerable and kind of telling people this is what's happening in my life. So really, a lot of people didn't know. Um, obviously, my immediate family knew. But I think that a lot of my friends didn't know. Uh, a few of my very close friends knew. But for the most part, it was just kind of, yeah, I'm not feeling very well working on it. Let's see what happens. Um I think I really relied on my immediate family during this time. I think that, you know, building a community and seeking out that emotional support is really important, but it is, at least for me, it was difficult to do that. How would you advise other people who are going through a similar process, whether it's with their own health or with the loved ones who basically have it as the primary challenge in their lives? How would you kind of advise them on building that community around them? I think that, you know, don't be scared to be vulnerable. Through being vulnerable, I think you and actually end up being stronger, which is kind of the opposite of what you would think would happen. But I think when you make yourself vulnerable, you are really opening yourself up for a strong connection. Um, obviously, it has to be with people that you trust. So really just your close friends don't be afraid to let them know this is what's happening during this time in my life I missed out on weddings uh, friends weddings and big important events in my friends lives and I think they would have been so completely understanding but I was just scared I think to make myself vulnerable but I guess my advice would be you know don't be afraid to do that because you'd be surprised at how you know your friends will pull for you and support you and be there when you need to talk to someone and what about the folks who see their friends whether it's an acquaintance a friend a close friend going through this but that friend hasn't reached out to them for help how do you feel like they should kind of handle the situation so you want to you want to be helpful in some way, mm -hmm. but maybe the person who's kind of undergoing it is in a lot of stress and may not be picking the optimal way to build their kind of immediate community. Yeah. Or you just want to be helpful in some way or another. What do you think is a really good way to assess it or act on it? I think the best way, um, in my opinion, is to just check in with your friend or whoever it is. Just check in and say, hey, I know that this is going on in your life um, and just let them know that you're there. I think that's a really good first step. Just let them know you're there for them to listen to or uh, help in any way that they need. I think that sometimes as the bystander, you think, oh, I want to do this, this, and this. and But all of the things that you think would be helpful is not really the same things that that person who's going through it might think is helpful. So I think really asking them uh, what they need is, I think, really helpful in the end. And at this point, would you say you're over the hump? Uh, yes. <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, you never know with health stuff, as I learned. Um, but I do think that I'm past the darkest points of what was going on. And, you know, right now it's just working on getting stronger and stronger every day, which I think 
is what's happening now, thankfully, which I'm very grateful for because I know that there are definitely lots of health issues that aren't as easily fixed. The Spitfire question that you really wanted. Oh, yes. I don't I... think I'm very good at this. But... <laughs> okay, go for it. All right. It's not going to be a this or that. It might be longer. Okay. First one, favorite season of the year to spend in New York? Mm -hmm. And where would be your favorite place within New York to be during that season? Mm, Okay. So favorite season, definitely fall. I think for any type of traveling, wherever you're going, fall is probably the best time to go. But it's only like a couple of weeks in the year. (laughs) But um, I would say... Hmm. You know, Forest Hills is really great. (laughs) Um, I also really like the Soho area. But if you're really taking advantage of the weather, I would say Central Park is probably really beautiful, is beautiful um, during the fall time. Favorite New York City establishment for food and drink? Oh, my gosh. So... As you know, I really love Milk Flower in Astoria. I'm a huge pizza lover, and I think Milk Flower does a great job. It's a great Queens establishment, um, so you're not, you know, there is quite a bit of a wait during the weekends, during the nighttime, but not the type of waits that you would experience in Manhattan. I also love Kiki's, which is a Mediterranean place um, in the Lower East Side, so love those two. Favorite neighborhood in New York City to live in your 20s? In your 20s? I think a lot of people live Upper East Side or Upper West Side. Those seem to be the pretty good options. I think it's affordable, more affordable than a lot of other places. And the commute isn't so bad if you have an office in the city. I think that if you're looking to save a little bit more money, I think Queens is an option to look into. But it really depends on what you're looking for. And to have a family in? To have a family in? I think you can guess. Forest Hills. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) Not going to ask why. Fun hobby or interest you want to get into next? Oh, my gosh. Hmm... I would love to practice Korean more and maybe you can do that with me. Maybe our next, the next time we meet, we'll speak exclusively in Korean. That one is not getting published. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, definitely always looking to get better in speaking, reading and writing Korean. Interesting person. You want to hear an interview from next. You know, I'm going to have to give a shout out to my best friend, Sonia. I think she has a really interesting life story as well. So I'd really be interested to hear, you know, how she'd answer some of these questions. Love you. (laughs) Would you rather start work at 7 and get off at Mm 5? Or start at 10 and get off at 8? 7. Start at 7 a.m. Definitely. Long commute, cool neighborhood, or no commute, horrible neighborhood? Long commute, cool neighborhood. What's your definition of long? Hour and a half. Oh. Is that not long? It's pretty fair. Hour and a half, two hours. Have you ever done that commute? No. (laughs) Well, you know, I know what 
a li- like an hour and a half commute feels like because my friend Sonia lives in Brooklyn. And even though it's only a 12 miles away from my home, it takes about an hour to an hour and a half to get there. So I know what it feels like. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I think that's pretty much it for now. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. <laughs> and we'll talk again. So Bye.